All right, I want to welcome everybody to the master's class here at Life Change Church. Life Change Church. And we are in the book of Genesis, chapter 9, verses 18, and we're going to get all the way, if I talk like a New Yorker here this morning, to chapter 10, verse 10. All right? And it's going to be about the new world, same old sin. All right? And we've been... Talking about the flood, we've been working through our way uh, through the book of Genesis, and we've gotten through the flood. And we talked about the faith that Noah demonstrated by entering the ark and being obedient to God and in doing all that God had commanded him to do. And Noah was obedient to that. And we talked about how eight people came out of that ark. That was Noah and his sons and their wives and, and so forth. And so all of the people who had turned away from God had now been destroyed by the judgment waters of God. And the earth was fresh, and it is new. And Noah had been given a new covenant relationship with God. And Noah had sanctified the earth with a burnt offering in gratitude to God for the salvation uh, of him and his family. And so now everything should be perfect, right? Uh, we've gotten rid of all the bad people, all the bad sin and everything. Everything ought to be perfect in, in the world, right? Should be no sin whatsoever left. Right? That's the way it ought to be. And, and everybody should live happily ever after, right? Right? Oh, let's just see what happens here today, okay? See what the Scripture tells us. So last week, we saw Noah tarrying. Uh, which means he was waiting, and he waited on God's perfect timing to leave the ark after the flood had occurred. So for a little over a year, Noah waited for God to say it was time to leave the ark. And then we saw Noah testing, and he tested by sending out the raven and the dove. And the raven went out into the world and found exactly what he was looking for. He found carcasses and so forth to eat. Now, based on what he did. Well, the raven stayed out there and he didn't come back. But the dove returned to the safety of the ark with information for Noah. And the dove illustrated how we as believers are to be in the world, but not of the world. And next we saw Noah trusting. And he trusted God as he left the ark. And so Noah offered to God a burnt sacrifice of each of the clean animals. And this sacrifice was for God alone. And it was offered with a thankful heart for God delivering Noah and his family from the judgment waters. Now this week, we started up with Noah toiling or work. Now Noah was going about the task that God had given him to do. And the first image that we are given of Noah toiling is Noah as a father. Genesis 9, verses 18 and 19. And it says, And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. Now these are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. So we begin with the names of Noah's sons. And it says, And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, Noah and his sons were the new heads of the human race. Noah became like a second Adam to mankind. And, and this is interesting because we frequently will say that we are all related through Adam, right? We all go back to Adam. But we are really closer kin than that. 
because we are related through Noah as well. Now notice the order of the three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now generally, you would think that the oldest son would be listed first. But that's not the case. Because in this case, Japheth was the eldest and Shem was the youngest. So why list Shem first in this section of the verses? So the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth through the line of Shem. And for that reason, Shem takes precedence over the other two. Now, a look at the Hebrew meaning of the names of the three sons is interesting because it says in Shem, it means glory or renown or the name. And Ham means hot. And in later usage was a collective name used for Egyptian. And then Japheth means opened or expansion. And this group of people settled around the Mediterranean and into Europe and into Asia. So next, notice that God tells us, and Ham is the father of Canaan. So why is Ham's son Canaan mentioned here? Why not all the other sons uh, of the other? Well, they're going to be mentioned here in just a little bit. But why pick out Canaan out of all of those sons now, to, to be listed here? Now, that's really for two reasons. Now, one reason we're going to see in a moment. And another reason is that when Moses wrote this record, and Moses was the author of the book of, of Genesis, the people of Israel were traveling to the land of Canaan, and it was encouraging for them to have this information regarding God's judgment upon the people of Canaan that we're going to see here in this lesson today. So the next thing that we see is that not only did Noah toil as a father, but Noah toiled as a farmer. Genesis 9 verse 20 says, And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. Well, this just means that Noah was a man of the ground, that he was a man giving himself to tillage. And God tells us that he planted a vineyard. Oh, but that leads us to Noah as a failure, okay? Verses 21 and 23, uh, through 23 says, And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. Now here, we're told how Noah failed in his obedience to God. God says, and he drank of the wine and was drunken and he was uncovered within his tent. Now there are all kinds of people out there trying to make excuses for Noah here. Now, one excuse given for Noah is that he was ignorant of the effect of wine since uh, no one had been drunk before. And we don't know if that's true or not, but I do. I don't know if uh, nobody had ever been drunk before this, you know, but I do believe that it is highly unlikely that man didn't discover the method of making wine from grapes prior to the flood, that Noah was the inventor of, of wine, okay? I just don't believe it. Oh, yeah, oh, that's right, yeah. So, but it is true that the Bible does not mention drunkenness as a sin that occurred before the flood. So, there you have Then there are those who hold the canopy theory about the flood. Now, the canopy theory states that before the flood, there was an ice covering in the sky, which the sunlit 
uh, filtered through so that grapes did not ferment before the time of the flood, and this was something new to Noah. Now, once again, I don't know if that's true or not. That's certainly a theory that is out there. Certainly there is nothing in Scripture to support this theory whatsoever, right? And so I find this theory highly unlikely as well, all right? So now, despite all of the different excuses put forth by the commentators, the simple fact is that Noah got drunk, and that was a sin. Period. There is just no satisfactory excuse that you can give that would explain why man, chosen by God as perfect in his generation, would choose to sin in this way. Now, I'm sure that Noah didn't plan to get drunk and shamelessly expose himself, but it happened just the same. Now, the Japanese have an appropriate proverb, and it goes like this. First, the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. Right? So what is obvious from this to me is that even though this is a new beginning in a new world, it is the same old sin that is still out there. And this incident reveals that this is true. And then we see that Noah's sin actually led one of his sons to sin. And God tells us, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Now, we're not told the full extent of what Ham or Canaan did. But we are told that Ham, seeing his father's nakedness, went about broadcasting it to his brothers. Oh my, isn't that the way we're supposed to handle sin? Go broadcast it to all of our brothers and sisters, right? So notice the difference in the reaction of Ham from that of his brothers. It says, And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. So Jim and Japheth's response was more one of respect and love for their father, and they tried to cover up his nakedness. So their response is really a good lesson for us on how we should react when a fellow Christian or even our parent sins. Instead of laughing with Ham and going to see the humiliating sight, Shem and Japheth showed their father love by practicing what God wants from each of us when we are faced with the sin of a fellow Christian. Now, is there anybody in here who doesn't sin? Anybody? Anybody want to raise your hand? No? no? Okay. So we have to deal with sin in our fellow Christians, right? Now, I want you to listen carefully to this section of the lesson because it addresses how we should be reacting to the sin that has, at times, become a dividing torment in churches today. How people handle sin of their brothers. In 1 Peter 4, 8, it says, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. So this, in this part of the book of 1 Peter, the apostle has been discussing the conduct of the church in society. And in verse 7, he tells the church to be sober-minded about the coming of the Lord Jesus. And now he says, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. So he is expressing the same idea that is stated in Proverbs 10:12. Hatred stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sins. So 
So listen to me. Hatred, discontent, and anger in a church will destroy the effectiveness of the Spirit of God in that church. Self-righteous pride about the failing of another brother will quench the Spirit of God in that church. You cannot be in the will of God and be harboring hatred or disdain towards one another. No matter what this Christian has done, and I'm going to say that again, no matter what this Christian has done, if we want this church to grow by the power of the Holy Spirit, we cannot harbor discontent, hatred, or anger towards someone within our own church or to another Christian. Just can't do it. We are instead to do what Peter says, to have a fervent charity or an agape love for one another. Now that word fervent means that it ought to be at full strength. We are to have a biblical agape love at full strength for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now why should we have this fervent charity? Well, Peter tells us, for charity shall cover the multitude of sin. Now, the purpose of this fervent love is to build a spirit of unity within the church. When we love one another, when we look past each other's faults, now, I'm here to tell you, my wife must love me an awful lot because she looks past a lot of my faults. So I'm here to tell you. Uh, all right? So she must have a fervent charity uh, for, for me, right? But the idea that Peter is expressing here is that if we have a fervent love for one another, and if our brother falls, we are to reach out to him with an agape love at full strength to bring that brother back up uh, and into the body of the church. The important thing is the fact that the end times are coming. They are coming. And we have a world that needs to hear the gospel of the free gift of salvation. That should be our focus. It is the winning of lost souls to Christ that should occupy our minds and not the faults of our brothers in Christ. Amen? Amen? All right, so the response of Ham's brothers expressed this idea as they stood together and held a garment behind them and backed into the tent with their eyes averted and covered Noah's naked body, not to shame him, but to cover his sin with love. And Proverbs 17, 9 says, He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very, or you can replace that word very with true, separateth true friends. But he that repeateth a matter separateth true friends. So it is certain that love was not on the mind of him when he went out to tell everyone of what he had discovered about his father. Listen, love does not cleanse sin, for only the blood of Christ can do that. First John uh, 1 John 1.7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. And not only does it uh, not cleanse sin, but love does not condone sin. For love wants God's very best for others. But love does cover sin and doesn't go around exposing sin and, and encouraging others to spread the bad news. Oh, don't people like to gossip about other people's sin, right? 
Oh, my goodness. Right. So when people sin and we know about it, our task is to help to restore them in a spirit of meekness, not find the first person we can talk about, uh, about what we know. And man, if you've got a secret and nobody else knows about it, isn't that the best thing to go out and gossip about? Ooh, that's not what God tells us to do. You know, we don't hold church meetings to, to list a person's sins. And we certainly don't send out emails describing the details of that sin. We deal with that person privately and separately. It is not a cover-up, as some have said. It is what the Bible tells us to do when we are dealing with somebody else's sin. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in, in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, it has been said that on the battlefield of life, Christians are prone to kick their wounded. And too often, that is true. But before we condemn others, we better consider ourselves, for all of us are candidates for conduct unbecoming to a Christian. Amen? Now, I'll finish this by saying that if we don't want to give Satan the victory of dividing any church, not just this church, but any church, then we better start loving one another with a fervent love and focus on sharing the gospel message of Jesus Christ rather than on the faults and what's going on in other people's lives. Now next, anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so the next, we're going to talk about Noah testifying. We've talked about him working or toiling. Now we're going to talk about Noah testifying. Chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. Oh, now look at that. Now Noah awakes from his drunken sleep and discovers what his younger son has done. Now his younger son is Ham, not Canaan, right? So with prophetic insight, he sees the far-reaching significance of his son's behavior. Now, to me, this is similar to what we see saw with the sons of Adam. The traits and the characters of these men were passed down through the nations that they were to later develop. Now, with Cain, it was his pride and arrogance that led him to develop a nation of people who turned away from God. Now, here with Ham, and Ham is Noah's son. He's the one that uh, saw it and went out and broadcast everything. Noah sees the full development of Ham's disrespect for his father and shameful broadcasting of the sin, and he sees it in Ham's youngest son, Canaan. Now, it's interesting to note that the words in this section of the verses are the only recorded words of Noah, and with them he testifies by life and by lips. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. Now, notice that Noah passes right over Ham's sin in silence. And in this great prophetic statement, he had nothing to say about the Hamatic people at all. He ignored all of Ham's other sons as well. Ham, Ham had several other sons, and he ignored all of them. The Hamites were simply passed over by Noah, and therefore they lacked a blessing at all. In spite of their evil ways, though, some of the Hamatic uh, people built large and advanced civilizations, including the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Egyptians, and in one sense, 
we can say that the descendants of Ham served the whole world through the ideas and the implements that they discovered and they developed. Like the Canaanites, these nations were gifted at creating things for this world. And Noah was predicting, he was speaking prophetically as he gave this curse, that the descendants of Canaan would become the lowest of servants. And the Canaanites are listed in Genesis 10, 15 and 19, and they are the very nations that the Israelites conquered in whose land that they inhabited. So here's really the reason why he drops down to the, uh, to the Canaanites and Canaan, because he wants to talk about the curse that is upon them as the Israelites are going into the land of Canaan. And so that's the prophecy that, that Noah is trying to give. He just skips over him. He says, all right, you guys did it, uh, but uh, your rebellion is going to show up in your son, Canaan. And that's where the curse is going to be. Now, that's the best reason I can give you. Uh, and uh, I, I can't give you anything else. The Bible doesn't really tell us a whole lot. Uh, so uh, it doesn't tell us a whole lot about that particular piece. It tells us a whole lot, just not about that particular piece. Yeah. Uh, and, and the Canaanites are, are listed there in Genesis 10, 15, 19, and they are the very nations that the Israelites conquered. Now, God later warned the Jews not to compromise with the Canaanite way of life and to destroy everything that would tempt them in that direction. Now, I want to make a real clear statement here. There have been many people over the course of history who have tried to use this verse as the basis of slavery. This, that is not scriptural. And the Bible does not teach the principle of slavery based on the color of someone's skin. First, I have no reason to believe that Ham or Canaan were black. I find it hard to believe that individual sons of Noah would have different skin color. I just don't see that as a possibility. Now certainly, later in the scriptures, later generations of this line were described as black in the Bible. Now, what happened to cause this, or how it occurred, we're not told in Scripture. We just know that it did occur. Now, the important thing to notice is that God said, cursed be Canaan. He doesn't put a curse on Ham, and a curse was upon Canaan, his son. And we do not know in what way Canaan was even involved in this incident. We are given only the bare record here, but we recognize that Canaan is mentioned for a very definite purpose. Let me repeat that it has nothing to do with the color of the skin. It is not a curse of color to put on a part of the human race at all. Anybody who tells you uh, that it is, is just flat wrong. So then we go to verse 26 of chapter 9. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. So Noah continues by saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. So now Shem and his descendants were blessed by Noah. And the height of that blessing would be that Jehovah was to be the God of Shem. It would be through this group of people that God would channel his revelation and his redemption. For it is through the Israelites that all of God's prophecy in the Bible has come from, and it is from the Hebrew line of Abraham and David that Jesus Christ would come as God incarnate in men to die for your sins and mine. And then we go to verse 27. God shall enlarge uh, Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. And Canaan shall be his servant. 
Noah continues his prophecy by saying, God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. So Japheth was to become the empire builder. And he was at length to come in a special way into Shem's spiritual blessing. Japheth was the father of the Greeks and of the Romans and of the Persians and of the great Aryan races of Europe. They are the people who for a thousand years have ruled the world through various empires. But this didn't happen right away because for centuries it seemed that the reverse of Noah's prophecy was taking place. It was not the Japhetic people, but the Hamatic uh, people and the Semitic uh, people who took the reins of power. It was the Hamatic Nimrod who became the first empire builder. It was Egypt and Assyria that flourished first. Even Carthage and the Phoenicians were Canaanite people. So for 2,000 years, the Japhetic people remained in the background. But at last their hour struck. It was Cyrus the Persian who defeated the mighty Babylonians that had created Daniel's first world empire. See that in Daniel 5.30. It says, In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And so it was through this event that the Japhetic nations, they stepped onto the world stage at that point. So then we're going back to uh, Genesis chapter 9, verses 28 and 29. It says, And Noah lived at the flood after the flood, 350 years. And all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So here we see the life of Noah come to an end 350 years after the flood occurred. And so next the scripture talks, uh, talks to us about the sons of Noah. We get into chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, and Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. So this is this whole chapter ten is a chapter of genealogies and of families, and where, uh, which are the origin of the nations of the world. Now, first we see the genealogy of Japheth in verses two through five, and then the genealogy of Ham in verses six through twenty, and finally the genealogy of Shem in verses twenty-one through thirty-two of the chapter. Now, notice that throughout the Bible, God follows the same pattern, giving the rejected line first, and then saying a word about it, and then he drops that subject entirely and, and does not bring it up ever again. And finally, he gives the accepted line, a line which is leading to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we begin with the sons of Japheth. Verse 2 of chapter 10. It says, The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Jabin and Tubal and Meshech and Tyrus. And so as we go through these now, I'm not going to give an exhaustive description of the nations that descended from each man. There are many good charts that are out there that are available, if that's what you're really interested in going and looking at. But I am going to just give a brief listing. And I'm giving it to you here in your handout as well. And from Magog, the Scythians came, the Slavs, the Russians, the Bulgarians, the Bohemians, the Poles, the Slavics, and the Croatians. And from Madai, the Indians and the Ironic races, the Medes, the Persians, the Afghans and the Kurds, and from Javan, the Greeks and the Romance nationalities, such as the French, Spanish, the Portuguese, and the Italians. And then from Tyrus, the Thracians, the Teutons, the Germans, the Scandinavians, and then the Anglo-Saxon race, or the English people. And then we have the sons of Ham, verse 6. And the sons of Ham were Cush and Mizram, 
and Put, and uh, Canaan. So from Canaan came the Phoenicians, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, and you, you guys try to say all these words right, right? The Girgashites and the Hivites. And from Cush came the Africans or the Ethiopians. And Mizraim founded uh, Egypt, and Put uh, founded Libya. And then we come to the sons of Shem, verse 21. And unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder, even to him were children born. Now here, Moses concentrates on the Semitic or the Jewish races. He tells us, or the, the races that came from the line of Seth and Sin. So he tells us that Shem was the father of all the children of Eber. Now Eber, or Heber, as some translate it, is significant because he is the father of the Hebrews. Oh, there you go. All right. Verse 32 says, These are the families of the sons of Noah, and after their generations, in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. So Moses closes this chapter with a brief summary. And, and the whole chapter emphasizes the completeness of man's dispersal and the picture that it gives. Now next, we move on to one of the most infamous sons from the line of Ham. And I saved him for last because the Scripture spends a great deal of time talking about him. And that's where the Scripture leads anyway. They, they, it holds them off uh, to last anyway. So it wasn't all my choice. Uh, I just follow God's lead uh, here on that, right? And so we're going to talk about Nimrod, which is the rise of Satan's ruler of Babylon. Oh, we're going to get in deep here today. We're going to get it deep, deep. All right? Now, I have told you guys that the book of Genesis is the seedbed of all prophecy and is the seedbed of all theology. That is, we see in type and in picture and in foregleam all of the great truths that we're going to find in the rest of the Bible. Now, that's the reason we call it the book of Genesis. That's the reason we call it the book of the beginning, right? Now, I don't know whether you've enjoyed with me discovering the picture and the person of Christ in the book of Genesis, but I sure have. It has been a thrill to me and a blessing to me to find our wonderful Lord portrayed here right in the opening verses of God's Word in type and prophecy and picture, and it's just been a blessing to me individually, and I hope it's been a blessing to each of you. But not only are you going to find a picture of Christ, but you're going to find the Antichrist pictured here as well. And this is because the Bible teaches that in the last days, there is coming a great world dictator who is called the beast, the man of sin, and the Antichrist. And just as there is a Christ, there is an Antichrist. And just as Jesus is the Son of God, the Antichrist is the son of Satan. Now, one is the seed of the woman, or the Christ. The other is the seed of the serpent. And one is the seed, uh, the son of God, and the other is the son of perdition. One is God's lamb, and the other is the devil's beast. And one has a kingdom, which is the kingdom of God, and the other has a kingdom, which is the kingdom of evil. One will rule over a city, which is the holy city, Jerusalem, and another will rule over a city, which is the hellish city, Babylon. 
Now today, and in the next week, and I don't know how far I'll get today, I may not get all the way through, but we're going to try. Today, and in the next week's lesson, we're going to learn something about that mighty city called Babylon, which symbolically and cryptically and prophetically stands for the consummation and the distillation of all evil. Now pay attention because we're going to see the rise and the fall of Babylon is not something that just happened in the dark, musty past or something that's going to happen way off yonder in the future. It deals with realities that we are facing here every day. And we're going to find out something about the person and the work of the devil as we study here in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. So there are three things that I want you to see as we study together about this wicked city of Babylon, which was both the cradle and the grave of all false religion, and the devil's kingdom as well. Now in this last part of today's lesson, I want you to see Nimrod, the rise of Satan's ruler of Babylon. And then next week, we're going to talk about the rise of Babylon and the ruin of Babylon, the city of sin, Satan's civic masterpiece. So now first, let's talk about Nimrod. And I want you to remember that I told you that we are going to see a picture of the coming Antichrist. We're going to see in type and prophecy a beast who is lurking in the shadows, the Antichrist. And as we look at the rise of this ruler of Babylon, I want you to notice four things about this man named Nimrod that makes him a picture to me of the coming Antichrist. Genesis 10, verses 8 through 10 says, And Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, wherefore it is said, Even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalni, and the land of Shinar. Now, so the first thing I want you to notice about this man of Satan, named Nimrod, is his arrogance. Verses 8 and 9, God tells us, And Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, the name Nimrod means, let us rebel. And he was a rebel and a leader of rebels. Now, the Bible calls the Antichrist the wicked one or the lawless one. That is, he was a rebel against God. And the Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, that he opposeth everything that God stands for. And that is the reason we call him the Antichrist, because he is the rebel. He is against God. I notice also that God describes Nimrod by saying he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, look at that word before. It is a word that may also be translated as against the Lord rather than before. And I believe that is really the way it should be translated. So here was one who was against God with all of his might. Here was one who lived a life of arrogance against the Lord. And so here he reminds me of the coming Antichrist because of his arrogance. But not only because of his arrogance, but because of his abilities. And look again in verses 8 and 9, And Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. Now I want you to underscore that word mighty. And then in verse 9, it says he was a mighty hunter. So underscore, uh, underscore that word mighty again. And then the last part of verse 9 says, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. So three times it is mentioned. 
And what, we, what have we said about uh, what God's uh, word means when it repeats things three times? Better pay attention because it's really important, right? He was mighty. And so he was mighty, mighty, mighty. So this was one mighty person. And again, Nimrod prefigures Satan's Superman and the Bible pictures the Antichrist is coming in 2 Thessalonians 2.9. Even him who coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. So now this Antichrist is going to have unbelievable power when he comes. He's going to be charming. He's going to be witty. He's going to be forceful. He's going to be intelligent. He's going to have the demonic power. And the devil is going to deliver unto the Antichrist supernatural power. Now Nimrod had it in the Old Testament. And I see not only therefore his arrogance, that he is a rebel against the Lord, but I see his abilities. He was mighty, mighty, mighty person. Not almighty, but he was mighty. Now the third thing I want you to notice about him is his authority. God tells us that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now look at that word hunter. Don't get the idea that he was out hunting deer and ducks and elk and moose and that sort of thing. No, the ancient rabbis tell us, and correctly so, that this refers to a person who was the hunter of the souls of men, just as the Lord Jesus Christ is seeking the souls of men. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So God is telling us here that his great ambition was to subjugate the souls of men. He was the one who brought devastation and death and subjugation to the world of his days. And he did it, as we're going to see, by a combination of force and falsehood. And so we see his great authority. And here he is, one who subjugates people, one who has the ability to rule over people, a hunter of men's souls. And so notice his arrogance his abilities, his authority, and then notice his ambition. God tells us in verse 10, and the beginning of his kingdom was battle. Now Nimrod wanted to rule. And this was his ambition. Now, up until this time, we've not read anything about men having a kingdom and lording it over other men. But Nimrod wanted to rule. And he wanted to be in authority. And you see, this has always been the devil's desire. Isaiah 14, 13 through 14 says, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven, and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. In the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. So the devil has always wanted to rule this world. And remember what the devil said to the Lord Jesus as he showed him all of the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all of these I'll give you if you'll just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only. And Jesus would not take the offer of the devil. But then there is another one who is coming who will take that. And his name is the beast and the Antichrist. And you know what? He may be alive and well today. I believe that's very possible because I believe the end days are near. And I believe that it's possible that the Antichrist is alive and living on planet Earth today. Now, that's just my own personal opinion. I don't have anything to prove that. I just That's just what I believe. And I believe that he's working in the shadows, ready to take over. Now, the evolutionists like for us to believe that man sprang from the beast. Listen, 
Man didn't spring from the beast, but he is headed towards the beast. He's headed towards the Antichrist. The history of man is this, that it began with the sin of man, and it will end with the man of sin. We are headed towards the Antichrist, and that's what human history, the time of the Gentiles, is going to be like. Now, of course, the Lord himself is ultimately going to rule, so history will really rule with Jesus Christ on the throne. But here is one who wanted a kingdom. He is a wicked man. He is a man who uh, was a rebel. Here is a man who had tremendous power. Here was a man who was the hunter of men's souls. He was a subjugator. And here was one who wanted a kingdom over which he was going to rule. And I believe that Nimrod is put in the Bible to help us understand what we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 about the seed of the serpent. So here's the seed of the serpent. There, there is coming a man, ladies and gentlemen, who will one day be the devil incarnate, just as Jesus Christ is God incarnate. And I believe it was also in the ruler of Babylon. So this is where I'm going to pause today in our lesson. I just got you warmed up with prophecy. Now I'm going I, I'm I'm to tell you you got to come back next week to hear the rest of it, right? Next week we're going to finish by talking about the rise of Babylon and the ruin of Babylon, which is this city of sin, Satan's civic masterpiece. Amen? Amen? Amen. Isn't that a lot of good stuff? There's a lot of good, there's a lot of material in, in, those, in those verses, man. There's a lot of deep stuff you guys, you guys got seminary class here today, so and, and it didn't cost you anything. It didn't cost you anything.